This is Jacobin Radio, and I'm Susie Wiseman. GM has announced the closing of five plants, four in the U.S. and one in Canada, affecting some 15,000 workers and their families, as well as towns and cities, from Lordstown, Ohio, to Detroit, Michigan, to Oshawa, Ontario, in Canada. We talked to Mike Parker, who worked 32 years in auto in Detroit, is a rabble-rouser, union activist, and writer of several books about the auto industry's reorganization and its effect on its workers, to get his understanding of what led GM to close these plants and the union's reaction. We then hear from former NDP leader and member of parliament Ed Broadbent, who hails from Oshawa, Ontario, the site of the GM plant in Canada, to be closed. Ed's father was a clerk at GM and his still-living uncle at 104 was on the GM picket line in Oshawa in 1937 in the strike that brought industrial unions to Canada. We'll get Ed's reaction and what Ed, described as the best Prime Minister Canada never had, thinks the political leaders should be doing now. Plus... L.A. Tacos editor Daniel Hernandez, just back from Tijuana, reports on the harrowing conditions inside the migrant refugee camp near the U.S.-Mexico border, where thousands are sheltering with hopes of entering the United States. Daniel reports they are positive and optimistic despite the squalid conditions. They've made the several-thousand-mile trek from violence-torn Honduras in search of asylum, safety, and the promise of a better future. All this when Jacobin Radio returns in just a moment. Welcome to Jacobin Radio. I'm Susie Wiseman, and we're going to be talking about auto. GM announced on November 26 that it's restructuring and that that would involve shutting down five manufacturing plants, four in the U.S. and one in Oshawa. Maybe 14 or 15,000 people will lose their jobs. Anger is high. GM says it's looking to the future and cutting car lines in the wake of electric cars and ride sharing. And they're saying that's what's forcing this move. The unions see a possible move to cheaper labor in Mexico and or China. So we're going to get the story from Mike Parker, who worked in auto in Detroit for 32 years and was a union activist and rabble rouser with labor notes and later with former NDP leader and MP from Oshawa, Ontario, Ed Broadbent. Mike is speaking to us from Richmond, where he's active with the Richmond Progressive Alliance. And as I said, he spent 32 years working as an electrician and union activist in the auto industry in Detroit. And I should just say, because Mike's a great character, and he started out as a physics major at the University of Chicago and then went to do, uh, because of political activity, I'm assuming, uh, became a PhD student in political science at Berkeley, where he was one of the leaders of the free speech movement. Later, he moved into auto and labor notes in Detroit and has written several books as well, including Working Smart, a Union Guide to Participation Programs and Democracy is Power, Rebuilding Unions from the Bottom Up. So, Mike, with all of that, welcome to Jacobin Radio. Well, I'm glad to be here. Thank you. Very good to have you. Well, GM announced this huge round of plant closures and layoffs, and as far as we know, they appear to be permanent. And that's thanks the kind of thanks that the workers are going to get for agreeing to the government bailout and accompanying concessions in 2009. That bailout was supposed to save jobs, but in reality, it was about saving profits, cutting costs, and especially at the expense of workers who've made 
huge concessions. So now what we see, as I just announced, GM is announcing the closure of these five North American plants and maybe later more, one apparently in South Korea and another to be announced. So, Mike, can you tell us what these closures were about? Well, I think the closures were about a number of things. Uh, First and foremost, I think the closures are about preparations for the contract talks next year. Mm -hmm. Uh, By doing this and doing this now, GM has a powerful bargaining tool here. It can basically let the union win a victory by reopening one or two of these plants, um, and the union can come off uh, as having saved them. And that's always been been a part of the bargaining. But this really shows the incredible weakness of the union. Um, In 2015 contract, uh, the question of job security and plant closings was very high on the list. And let me just read a sentence from that contract. Sure. This will confirm that during the term of the new collective bargaining agreement, the company will not close, idle, nor partially or wholly sell off, spin off, split off, consolidate, or otherwise dispose of any form in any form, any plant, asset, or business unit of any type beyond those which have already been identified. (laughs) <laughs> you know, you'd, you'd think that they've found every single word that could possibly describe um, closing a plant. Uh, and no, they've got new words now. Now we have things where words like unallocated and uh, unassigned, so that the plants are not technically closed. But it's clearly a violation of the spirit and what was said in that in that contract. Further, there's an escape clause, of course, which says, of course, if market conditions arise, um, we may have to do something different. But should that happen, the company will review the conditions and their impact on the particular location. And it also says that if something that is unavoidable happens, that the um, General Motors, the company agrees basically to take these actions whenever practical, including prior discussions with the union and reducing over time and shifting dual-sourced production requirements to the UAW General Motors plants. And what does that mean? That that means basically that they agree that they will close plants which are not GM UAW plants in Mexico or in other countries or and bring that work back to the plants that are here. It's obviously very hard to negotiate, you know, plant closing in in, in the context of capitalism, uh, but it's pretty clear that this was a slap in the face to the union and any self-respecting union that had this clause in the contract and faced with this kind of announcement from GM without any prior discussions with the union with with the union as at least as far as we know um, would declare a strike immediately or would take some action or would at least be threatening to go out the next day unless this position is reversed and instead what you have is the you know there's a lot of anger in the membership people feel totally betrayed uh, by this, but there isn't this kind of action in the uh, leadership of the union trying to figure out some way to fight this. They're pretty much prepared, I believe, to 
accept this and to, you know, win one or two plants back. Well, let me um, just ask you on that, yeah. Mike Parker, because there's been a history and people, you know, if they don't know the history of the auto uh, union, it was very, very strong. And then in the years even before the crisis, it seemed to be synonymous with give back concession, weak leadership, you know, and again, as you say, anger on the part of the membership. And then in the in the context of the crisis and, you know, even and the bailout and the new conditions, it seemed that the union got even weaker. And so is this something that, you know, you expected the union to do. You just said that you sh- that what they should be doing is is calling for strikes. And I, I'm going to be speaking to Ed Broadbent in a minute. And I think that is what he's expecting them to do in Oshawa. How do you evaluate this union leadership and and, and what is it doing? Well, the union leadership a long time ago, um, that's back in the '80s, uh, basically adopted the policy that the only way that the union would could survive would be to help the auto companies that it represented become more competitive. And the way to become more competitive was to accept the company's definitions of what, what it needed. And so while there'd be bargaining over everything, it was they, the union basically did not resist the company's transition to lean production. It did not resist the company's introductions of technology or respond to them in a way that could help help the union. And so the basis for this sort of understanding of how the union should act with the company in, in this terms of technolo- technological change was pretty clear. But we go back a little bit further. I mean, the union is incredibly weak right now, yeah. weakened by um, a huge scandal that's taken place in the past few years that have been revealed where um, money in the training programs was basically embezzled and given to various union leaders or used to pay for um, housing and repairs and other things for union leaders. Um, uh, and it was a sort of an agreement between some union people and the company people, and the company people actually have emails saying, you know, ah, we're doing this to keep the union fat and happy. Um, there's no sense, I believe, that this union is going to fight on anything. Okay, uh, well, let's go, again. because we. I, I want to get to the company's side, in essence, you know, what okay. you think that they're trying to get, um, and what's the background for the closures? What, what uh, pressures are they yeah. responding to? Well, I think I think there are a number of things that are happening that are pushing the company in this direction. Um, some of them are pretty well known. The company is pushing is is putting in more automation, which means, of course, that it needs fewer fewer workers. Um, it's been uh, on a program of instituting lean production methods throughout its system over and over, which bottom line means that it gets far greater productivity from the workers that it has uh, than it had previously at the expense of workers working both harder and more dangerously. It's been shifting to outsourcing. This is due to the shift uh, to outsourcing. Since union workers make relatively more money, that it paid for the company wherever possible to purchase outside the company 
um, from non-union places to bring that those products into the plant. And so you found that the number of people who worked under the UAW GM contract kept declining, even if the num- even where the numbers of auto workers was also declining, but declining at a much slower slower rate. Um, you find the UAW shifting production to both the South and to Mexico right. and to other places where they can get much cheaper labor and where they have much more control over the labor force. But I think what's really new in this is that GM is also trying to shift its whole business model from being just simply a car manufacturing company to being a player in software and in operations. This is is what we're seeing everywhere, right? I mean, I'm sorry to interrupt, but I mean, we're seeing this on the industry side news, and they're talking about that, and they talk about it in such a way as uh, the workers that presently are employed simply could not adapt. So maybe you could talk a little bit about that. Yeah, um, and that's precisely the point. I mean, this stuff is known. It's known in the industry. And so what the union should be doing is saying, okay, we need to have our workers trained for the new jobs that are being created in these in, in these industries because there are new jobs being created. But instead of doing that, the union has allowed the company to basically focus on de-skilling the workers that it has so that they're less prepared for doing these new jobs mm. so that they can do the current jobs they have more efficiently while the company hires new people who are non-union to do the jobs that are being created and which are the jobs which are central to the new business model. And is this new business model about, I mean, because the company has made a big deal about saying, how the new challenges are that there's self-driving cars and that there's ride-sharing. Those are two separate issues, I think, that one would, you know, probably signify a complete retooling of how they produce for the self-driving cars, but GM's been doing that throughout, what, it's many, many decades in existence. What about that, though? What kind of a challenge does that represent, and why is it that the workforce that exists in the plants that exist um, are not seen to be able to, uh, you know, to complete this kind of, or, or rise to the challenge of these new innovations? Well, the point about the self-driving cars is there's a big shift in what's important in the car. Um, so you have sensors, for instance, of various different kinds. Um, you have software issues in the cars. Um, those are the those are the central part and the and the problems in the production of of these things. The actual manufacturing of the physical car is relatively easy because uh, an electric car is easier to uh, assemble and has fewer parts and all that, and that. Uh, the methods of doing this are fairly well-known and are fairly easy to automate. Mm-hmm. What isn't easy to automate is making these things work. And that requires all kinds, you know, the jobs are more in the testing areas and in the development areas and then in the repair areas. And those skills are basically not things that come, you know, are the current skills of people who work for as in the UAW for General Motors. They're skills that are outside. 
if you want those kinds of jobs, if you're the union and you want those kinds of jobs, it isn't enough just to ask for training. You have to ask for control of those jobs. You have to say, those jobs belong in the bargaining unit. Because then, if the company needs those skills, then they'll make sure people are trained. Right now, most of the training programs that they do do are for jobs that don't exist, Uh and they don't work very well. Wow. And so, okay, and that's something. So training is a very big issue. Um, You mentioned, you know, the the union's weak response, and now we see that, you know, the company is, is basically calling for a kind of restructuring. Are they listening at all to this, and is there anything – I mean, do you really – I should say that Auto News has said that what this really is is the first salvo, you know, for the um, contract negotiations that begin next year, and that it's basically, a you know, a theatrical chess match that uh, GM wants to reduce clo- uh, costs, and they want to do that by shifting production elsewhere. What does the union do in response to that, and what are you seeing them doing, and what do you think workers should be doing? Well, I think there are weaknesses in the GM system. I mean, the part of lean production is all the just-in-time production, which means that stopping production in some places will affect the whole system. You know, general mo- the union could organize rolling strikes, for instance, to say this is not acceptable and we're going to make GM really very unprofitable as long as it insists on not, you know, basically disregarding the workers and not um, providing the training and not involving the union in moving into this new field. Um, but it it takes, it's, it's the kind of organization which has to be done not by calling something from uh, Solidarity House in Detroit, but by organizing people on the shop floor and preparing them, because these kinds of things have to be, there has to be a lot of involvement in them. Otherwise, the company has already has enough scabs. The company has an, enough technology um, to be able to sidestep any particular rolling rolling strike. Uh, do you... it, it, it doesn't start with it doesn't start with just simply a policy. It starts with saying we have to re-involve the members that we have in this union, in the union, and they have to feel a stake in it, and they have to be empowered to actually act on their own behalf, which is something the company has, the union has tried to prevent um, over the last 30 years. And do you see any um, attempts at cross-border organizing since, you know, this affects plants in Canada, a plant in Canada, and if it's true that they're trying to shift production to Mexico, is is there anything is there any possibility of that kind of cross border organizing within the union to prevent you know these closures well there is that possibility but i don't see this uaw as being open to them uh, uaw leadership is being open to them even though the possibilities are there again the uaw would probably be perfectly happy to settle for closing the canadian plant if as long as the work came to the us Um, And that's unfortunate. I mean, the company has been very good at pitting not only country, union country against others, but um, even plant against plant in the GM system. They will go for concessions at one plant saying, if you don't give these concessions, we're going to close, take the work from this plant and give it to another GM plant, which is more cooperative and willing to go our way. And the union has not successfully organized against that process. 
And finally, because we only have a minute left, how do you see this politically? Donald Trump, you know, famously in his campaign went to Detroit and said that he was going to bring these car jobs back. And now um, two years into his administration, you're seeing um, plants being closed. Is this something that you expect that he'll um, demagogue on and, and would it make any difference? No, I, I, yes, I think it, he will demagogue on, and I don't think he'll. There's anything that much that he can or will do about it, except to lay claim victory when they give one plant back. When when Mary Barra says, "Oh well, actually, after discussions with the union and with Donald Trump, we're not going to close the uh, Hamtramck plant or something like that." Um, uh, it's uh, I, as I say, I think. The automotive news hit it right if they call it theatrics, because there has always been these kinds of theatrics associated with the contracts. And it's just that people are more sensitive to it now because the job situation, for skilled jobs at least, and decent paying jobs, is still very poor. I want to thank you so much for joining us with your insights, Mike Parker. And let's come back and talk about it again another time because this issue, this is the opening salvo, and there's going to be a lot more before it's over. Mike Parker is speaking to us from Richmond, California. He's active with the Richmond Progressive Alliance. He was a union activist in Detroit Auto for more than 30 years and written several books about the industry's reorganization and its effect on unions, published by Labor Notes. Go look him up. And thanks so much for joining us today, Mike Parker. Well, thank you. It was a pleasure. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. I'm Susie Wiseman. This is Jacobin Radio. Don't go away. When we come back, we'll get the Canadian side of the story with Ed Broadbent. Welcome back. This is Jacobin Radio. I'm Susie Wiseman. Very pleased to have Ed Broadbent with us. And we're going to be continuing our discussion about the auto and GM closings, this time on the Canadian side of the border in Oshawa, in Ontario. Ed is a former leader of the NDP, the New Democratic Party. He's been described as the best prime minister Canada never had. And in the 1980s, Ed Broadbent was the most popular politician in Canada, scoring higher in public opinion polls than even then-Prime Minister Pierre Trudeau, the father of the current Prime Minister. And he is also the head of the Broadbent Institute. I should say Ed is an educator and an advocate and socially engaged and very keen at this point in his life to pass on his knowledge to young people who are similarly engaged. And so he's doing that through the Broadbent Institute, which is a progressive think tank, and it has a lot of programs that push for left social democratic politics. And I like to say that Ed is a troublemaker and an agitator and an analyst. He was a professor. And I guess most importantly for today, Ed hails from Oshawa, which is the site of the GM factory that will be shuttered in Canada. Welcome to Jacobin Radio, Ed Broadbent. Well, it's good to be with you, and it sounded like my mother doing that introduction. Well, okay. <laughs> let's see if I could do her proud. But let's also say that, you know, your father 
was a clerk at General Motors. You have an, an uncle who is still alive who was, I understand, on the picket line in 1937 in Oshawa in the strike that brought industrial unions to Canada. So before we go into the shock and horror of this plant closing in Oshawa, which I read in an article in the Washington Post, the mayor said he only found out about it five minutes before the announcement. Let's hear about your own connection to Oshawa. Well, yes, I grew up there um, all my formative years, and I, I would say the, the conditions that shaped my subsequent political outlook uh, uh, have their foundation there. General Motors uh, has been in the community for about 100 years. Uh, before that, it was a, a, one of the many successful independent automotive communities that had sprung up both in the United States and Canada early in the 20th century. But GM has been the company for many, many, many decades. And they uh, just responded with callous and indifference uh, to this community. And I would add uh, that the politicians were uh, passive and indifferent uh, in terms of their response to it. Uh, let me elaborate just a mm-hmm. bit on that. Okay. The government of Canada, under with the Prime Minister Mr. Trudeau, said in effect that the the federal government would do all it could to help the workers uh, in their present plight. Uh, note, he didn't say they were going to try and turn things around or make GM live up to its, uh, I would argue, both ethical and legal obligations of a kind. Nor did the Premier of Ontario. The Premier of Ontario uh, blustered his way through saying that uh, he talked to the president of General Motors, that is to say the Canadian president, um, and was told that the ship had already left the dock, to quote him. Well, instead of saying it's time to turn the ship around, he said he was simply going to accept it and once again talked about bringing uh, aid to uh, the workers. Um, they don't want aid uh, and assistance to uh, help them get through the, these times. They want a restoration of some production uh, facility. Uh, I'd like to take a minute and say why the Canadian case is special. Yeah, and I was just going to ask, too, because I know that, you know, in, at the time of the crisis in 2008-2009, and GM then filed for bankruptcy, isn't it the case that the Canadian and Ontario governments provided $10 billion, a $10 billion bailout to help yeah, rescue yeah, it? Yes, indeed. <laughs> and although part of that has been repaid, by no means all of it. It's still in, the, in excess of the uh, $2 billion that's owed, and there's no, no claim uh, uh, that, that, that's even going to be met. Okay. But the point that has been missed by media here in Canada, uh, as well as elsewhere, is that for uh, two decades before the NAFTA agreement came into effect covering Canada, the U.S., and Mexico, there was a bilateral uh, trade agreement uh, uh, between Canada and the U.S. Uh, that provided to the U.S. tariff and duty-free access to the Canadian market, to the then General Motors, Chrysler, and Ford. They could ship cars and parts across the Canadian bar- border into the Canadian market without paying duty uh, or tariffs on them. This gave them more than two decades of clear access to the market. 
that the Japanese did not have and that the Europeans did not have. So they reaped millions of dollars in benefits uh, in the period that led up to the NAFTA agreement. And with NAFTA, uh, it replaced this bilateral agreement uh, the, that allowed the big three, as they were known, to ship into the Canadian market with all this duty-free access. So they cannot treat the Canadian site of Oshawa just like uh, the American uh, locations because there were very specific Canadian government provisions for them that they benefited from. Can you also say, Ed Broadbent, before you go into further, just for our listeners, how big is Oshawa? How important is that factory to Oshawa and its whole economy? Well, the the greater area now, it's about 150,000. And the facility now is much smaller than what it used to be. When I was elected there in 1968, there were 20,000 auto workers. Well, that's down to about 3,000 now. But the 3,000 in General Motors, of course, has to be seen in the context of the the automobile parts industry that is many more thousand Mm -hmm. in in the neighborhood that depends largely on GM uh, and to keep it going, but also feeds into uh, the assembly, for example, of Chrysler and Ford products as well. So it's a major employer in the region that's going to be yanked away. And one of the um, oldest, I understand as well, that it was uh, first set up in Oshawa in 1918. Indeed. Yeah. And it's one of the oldest, but it's also, in, in terms of rating, uh, one of the best and most efficient uh, in North America in the GM chain. Hmm. And the GM argument that they're doing all this simply for modernization to shift, for example, to um, electric cars doesn't hold water because they're going to have to put that those electric cars, if that's the argument, somewhere. And uh, we would argue that a, a location in, in Oshawa ought to be one of those decisions. The facility is uh, the kind that's easily... Um, shifted to producing different kinds of cars. It's been widely recognized as being quite technically sophisticated in that sense. And if GM is going to locate somewhere, as it claims it will, then there is a good argument to be made, uh, not only in the the benefits I talked about they were getting for decades, but during the uh, 2008 crisis, uh, as happened in the U.S., so too in Canada, GM got billions of dollars at that time as well. So there's a a particular claim in terms of past history, past financial benefits for Oshawa to be selected. But I must speak frankly, I I agree with the head of the Canadian Auto Workers Union who said that the real game being played here by General Motors is is not just they're going to shift to electric cars, Everyone, everyone has known that in the automotive business for some uh, a few years now. That's hardly new. Uh, but the plan is to shift production down to Mexico, uh, where rates in Canadian dollars are about $2 an hour, a fraction only of mm. what American and Canadian workers get, or, and or, I should add, shift production to uh, China. Uh, so this is a callous, company that's very profitable right now, has benefited 
from U.S. government handouts and Canadian government handouts, and there ought to be pressure put on them by the governments to be equitable in terms of their investment. And, and, and speaking as a Canadian, that Canada should get its share. And is that something, Ed Broadbent, that you see both the head of the Ontario government, provincial government, as well as the federal government in Canada using exerting pressure to do? Oh, yes, it can. And, and the Canadian government, the provincial government of Ontario, our provinces, as many Americans will know, actually in, in the overall scheme of governments in Canada, have more power in our system than the American states have. And mm-hmm. Ontario is the biggest province and has a lot of financial clout. And uh, instead of just backing down and saying he's, he's going to watch as the ship pulls out of the harbor, uh, the uh, premier of that province should be calling into his office senior executives from General Motors, point out recent benefits they've got from the Ontario government and the historic claims that I've already talked about, and, and demand that uh, some of the new investment coming from GM ought to take place in Oshawa on the Canadian side of the border. And similarly, Mr. Trudeau, um, uh, who who is supposed to be meeting with, he's meeting as we speak with Mr. Trump and other world leaders in Argentina, but he is uh, allegedly going to be speaking to Mr. Trump about collaborative action of some kind on to put pressure on General Motors, and I hope that that takes place. Well, and given that, Ed, uh, because this is something Trump campaigned upon, too, and of course we know that Trump isn't exactly known for truthfulness, uh, but he did say to auto workers during, uh, in Michigan and elsewhere during his campaign that he promised them that you know their plants would be up and running um, when he was president, and just the opposite is taking place. But given... And I, I guess I I, I want to know, if you were <laughs> Prime Minister of Canada, you said you'd be talking to them right now, but would you, is the union also, and would you, in this kind of case, be talking to the union about measures to, say, uh, prevent this, not just, you know, getting them in there, but actually taking steps to prevent them from closing it down? Is that a possibility? I think I think it's a possibility and should certainly be talked about. Uh, that I mean, that's the, that's the horrible short-run reaction in watching two governments, in, in this case Canadian government and the Ontario government, passively just accepting this. There's no need for them to just to accept it. They ought to be calling calling them in. The, the deadline, it's a year away that the plant's supposed to be shut down. So there's a fair bit of time and putting pressure on these people to say that they can't just function as a corporate entity with the uh, uh, eye exclusively on the bottom line, they have obligations that to workforce and to communities, communities that have educated their workers, communities that have paid the taxes necessary for the infrastructure, the roads and railway systems that their factories depend upon. And, and political leadership can make a difference, and political clout can make a difference. Uh, and they these... The heads of provincial and federal government should be doing that.
And okay, so we really just have time for maybe one more question, and that is, you mentioned the head of the um, of UAW in Canada making a statement, which was basically trying to lay out what's really going on here. That they want to move shop, and in Auto News this week, which is an industry publication, they said this was really a shout ahead to contract neg- negotiations for UAW and warning the union. You know, first by I guess exercising the heavy hand from the employer that things are not going to be easy and this what's this is the threat down the road what did what what has been the response of the uh, of the union and maybe union members do we know well the response of the canadian he- head of the auto workers i've been impressed with he as we speak he was he announced he was having a meeting in detroit with the head of the uaw and he was talking about organizing Across Canada and the U.S., uh, systematic strikes to do economic damage to various GM facilities to make them pay attention to exercise what power they do have, which is to you know interrupt the flow of the supply lines of motors that have to be transferred from one plant to another to be assembled. There's a- there's action that the workers themselves can take and can take and uh, the head of the Canadian auto workers has su- has suggested that he was going to bring this strategy to the head of the UAW in in the US i think it's something that should be very seriously considered well, Ed, we've run out of time, but you ended on exactly the note that I wanted to hear, and that's one of struggle, and you can see why people say that you're still an agitator and an educator, <laughs> and also an expert in the theory and practice of policymaking, in this case, what they should be doing now that you are no longer in power, as you were not as Prime Minister, but as Prime Minister Canada never had and leader of the New Democratic Party. Thanks for joining us today from Ottawa, and I hope it's not too cold there. It is. Too cold. Okay. By many degrees. It's been many. a pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much, and we'll talk Take to you again. Care. Thank you. And I'm Susie Wiseman. Don't go away. This is Jacobin Radio. I'm Susie Wiseman. We're going to start with the crisis right on our border. That is the U.S.-Mexico border. More than 7,000 Central American migrants have arrived at the border uh, after crossing Mexico and parts of Central America, many from, as we know, Honduras. Uh, And these are official figures released by the Mexican Interior Ministry. And they're staying at temporary uh, shelters all across the border cities. But Daniel Hernandez is with us, and he has been on this story. He was reporting from the border, also known as Tijuana. And Daniel's the editor of L.A. Taco. He's the former Mexico bureau chief for Vice News and a former staff writer at the L.A. Times and L.A. Weekly. I should tell you that Daniel brought us incredible stories about the Mexican earthquake, the election, Ayotzinapa scandal. And he's the author of the book, Down and Delirious in Mexico City. He just returned and filed his L.A. Taco featured news report on November 28th. And it's called A Harrowing Look Inside the Migrant Refugee Camp on the Border in Tijuana. And he wrote there that the camp is growing, and I'm quoting, clearly overwhelming local authorities who move about with almost shell-shocked expressions behind medical face masks, diseases spreading including lice and respiratory infections, 
four migrants have tested positive for HIV, four have chickenpox, the local health secretary said, and 34 women are pregnant. Well, Daniel, I probably shouldn't have gone through all of that. Let's just begin with your description of what you saw there. How many people crowded into the camps and what kind of conditions? Yes, uh, exactly what happened. I mean, it was pretty horrifying to see some of the conditions that these migrants are in. They are really just kind of crammed into this sort of public gym. There really is no other recourse and no other place for them to go. And as I wrote in the piece that you quoted there, it's really was pretty evident that the local authorities there in Tijuana are overwhelmed. I don't think that they realize the magnitude of the, the issues that would be before them once this migrant caravan arrived about a week and a half ago. And now, after it just rained, um, you know, yesterday, right. it's pretty clear that the situations are worsening. And on top of all that, more migrants are heading towards Tijuana. And this is just, you know, really a humanitarian crisis, no matter how you look at it. Obviously, there are issues in terms of um, health issues. The rain didn't help. It probably just exasperated many of these problems. And so it's really alarming to see that this is literally happening right on the doorstep of the United States. And I could ask you, just because you said it, they were in a gym, but it's an, is it an outdoor gym? I don't quite understand, because the pictures we see are tents outside and a whole sort of bank of portable toilets that have overflowed and people are yes. trying to jump over conditions that even, you know, worse than you see in some of these refugee camps throughout the Middle East, I would say, in Africa. Yeah, there was actually a, I'm following a Human Rights Watch observer, and he said he had been in Chad and Cameroon and other parts of Africa, and he had said he had, had not seen conditions worse than that. So, yeah, it's pretty stark. It's more of a complex, so there is a building and a gym, and I think that's where some of the women and children were at, and a lot of the men are outside. It's sort of like, so it does have sort of an outdoor component, but it's, mo- it's mostly outdoor, in fact. And these are called deportivos in Mexico. They're sort of public gyms yeah. or public YMCAs. And there was just no place else to for them to go. As I understand it now, the city of Tijuana has um, moved to open another shelter that's, you know, about 11 miles away in a very a rougher part of TJ, I would say, on the eastern side of TJ. From the looks of it and from what I've seen and from my reporting, I got the sense that basically the authorities are really paying catch-up and this is also, this is at the local level, uh, the city of Tijuana, the state level, state of Baja California, and the federal level, because right now there's a federal transition happening on December 1st, there's going to be a transition in government in Mexico. So it's kind of all these things are sort of juggling up in the air, and in the meantime, they have thousands and thousands of migrants who are just kind of waiting for their chance to try to make an asylum claim to the United States. Well, and, and I want to go into a lot of that, including, you know, the change in government, but first... Tell us a little bit about the migrants. How far have they traveled? For how long? Who are they? Why did they make the journey? Yeah, so this caravan originated in San Pedro Sula, Honduras. San Pedro Sula, as some of your listeners may know, is considered one of the most violent municipalities anywhere in the world. It occurred, it started around October 13th, October 15th is when it sort of started congealing then they basically marched to Guatemala, and then from there at the Guatemala-Mexico border is where they started either dispersing or um, uh, heading up to Mexico City, from Mexico City over to Guadalajara. Um, 
But, you know, one caravan is just one caravan, right? There are other waves, other groups, other migrants who are not traveling exactly attached to the caravan, but before or after it. And so, um, you know, and many of them just tell the same story. They're fleeing sort of economic um, uh, disenfranchisement, lack of opportunities, a lack of um, an ability to sort of make money necessary to feed their families. Many of them are also being threatened and extorted. By gangs, we're talking MS-13, the Mara Salvatrucha, gangs that were generated by U.S. policy. Um, if we go back to what happened with the migrations after the civil wars in Central America, and then the gangs that generated in L.A., and then the deportation flows during the sort of get tough policies in the United States. So this cycle of uh, violence and of catastrophe is what is fueling this particular migrant caravan that um, has gathered currently in the city of Tijuana. And I think you write in your article, Daniel Hernandez, you know, that the conditions in Honduras, you know, ever since the coup, literally the U.S. supported, I shouldn't, uh, I don't know if you could say U.S. backed, but certainly it was, uh, has has worsened to the extent that, as you describe in the conditions of San Pedro uh, Sula, are so dangerous that people feel they have no choice uh, but to leave. And I think you say that the brother of the current prime minister was just arrested as a major drug lord, drug trafficker in Miami. And the question is whether really the country has now been put in the hands of the drug traffickers. Yeah, you know, that is such, a, I think that's an element that has been underreported. This, we're talking about a country that is one of the poorest in the Western Hemisphere, that has been wracked by successive waves of political instability, that is a sort of waypoint for um, cocaine and for the precursor chemicals to, um, you know, methamphetamine and also at this point probably opioids from you know, South America, Colombia, Venezuela in particular. And now you have sort of these government officials, you know, um, the, uh, the current president, Juan Orlando Hernandez, his brother was arrested in Miami. I think there's also an uncle that is uh, facing charges, arrested by uh, the DEA. Um, so there's serious charges there. And it just shows that, you know, the more we neglect, but also sort of um, as a government, uh, put our fingers inside these countries and sort of prop up some of these more conservative um, uh, political figures who are more pliable to Washington consensus-style interests, right. well, there are going to be effects in terms of the population. Uh, so many of the migrants I spoke with said that Honduras has been sort of in a nightmare state um, ever since uh, Hernandez uh, was named president because there were serious questions about the legitimacy of his election mm. um, in 2017. So. Right. It's, a, it's just, you know, crisis after crisis that hits this region, much of it having to do with U.S. involvement or the after effects of U.S. policy. And so, you know, you talk to some of these folks and they really make it clear to you that there is no other option for them but to try to, you know, desperately seek uh, asylum in the United States. And so that's kind of the situation that we're sitting on. 
And I want to go into both the response from the United States and from Mexico, but let's just do the U.S. first, because during the campaign for the midterm, Donald Trump, you know, made uh, uh, scored political points by demonizing these people who were in a caravan rather than, say, the more normal way of coming, you know, into the U.S. is in small groups, but not large groups. It seems that this is a much more effective way to make a political point on their behalf. But Trump then, you know, basically criminalized them, said that they were, um, you know, rapists and criminals, that those children weren't their own. They just I, I can't remember the use where he grabbed them uh, for effect and stationed troops on the border and told them if rocks are thrown to treat it as, you know, as if they were rifles. And you wrote that more people arrive every day at the border, even though it's been a, a caravan, but it's been like a rolling stream. How do they react to the way they've been demonized by Trump? And what do you, how do you see that? All right. Well, the government of Donald Trump really couldn't have had a worse reaction to this kind of uh, humanitarian crisis. Uh, you know, there is there is a lot of gray, and I think that has also sort of been undermined in the coverage in the sense that, um, you know, the United States side and Republicans are sort of anti-immigrant or reactionary voices will focus in on some of these cases um, involving possible gang members who might even be in the caravan itself. If mm-hmm. any of that even exists, or if there is grabbers, he called them, people who are grabbing grabbers, kids, yeah. allegedly, um, to sort of make it across and say that they're kids. I mean, the United States is, is at the same time, has a very smart infrastructure and apparatus. There is no reason why the government cannot absorb and respond to the magnitude of this crisis. It's just a matter of them not wanting to. It's, it's, it's not an impossible task to vet someone who is seeking asylum, to vet someone who says that a child next to them is their child. Uh, in most cases, in the vast majority of cases, at least in what I saw and what other reporters have seen, no one is lying, you know, to try and, like, get in. No one is, is fictionalizing the trauma and violence that they're escaping in order to get into the country. These are sort of last resort migrants and refugees who are, at the same time, trying to follow the rules and trying to enter the country legally as, you know, in, in uh, opposition to what Donald Trump is saying. This is the legal way to try to seek refugee status in the United States. You present yourself at the border and you request asylum. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's not as though once they do that, the migrants are sort of left to freely, you know, enjoy life in America. They're immediately placed in detention, many for months and months, if not years, as they, as they sort of get in line in this enormous backlog of cases that have to go before immigration judges. Right, and, and yet, so, yeah, go ahead, I was just going to say, and yet, and people know as well, or they'd have to know that over the last six months or maybe a year, children have been separated, and yet they come with, you know, with their children willing to take the chance because conditions are so bad that they're leaving. Um, did, you, did you talk to people who mentioned that at all as a possibility, or were they hopeful and positive about their possibilities in the U.S.? Well, I've just, I was so... Um, moved, I would say, by the optimism and the hope, even in the face of these conditions mm-hmm. that many of the migrants are clinging onto. 
actually it didn't even come up at all now that I think about it, the times I spoke with people and, and even women with children who maybe hadn't even thought of the possibility that they might be separated from their children once they cross the border or get into an asylum proceeding. Mm. I think people are literally just going day to day. They are relying on, you know, the generosity and, and the goodwill of uh, the, not just the Tijuana government, which is clearly overwhelmed as I wrote, but also just volunteers and people who are showing up and bringing goods over and trying to help out as best they can. I think many of the migrants are just, you know, probably as surprised as many other people that they made it that far, you know, 2,700 miles right. through Mexico, which is a very treacherous journey to take for someone that vulnerable. There are still cartels and drug gangs that, um, you know, have de facto control over large chunks of Mexico that are always willing to victimize migrants who are passing through. There's massive discrimination issues in Mexico with regard to Central Americans. And so it's not as though they haven't already struggled and already shown how willing they are to put everything on the line and to put everything at risk and to try to survive. And so to get to the border and sort of be treated in this way, being tear gassed by U.S. border agents in an internationally unlawful act, I would say, I mean, I think it just shows that, you know, it, I guess the, the Trump government is kind of a textbook case of how not to respond to this kind right. of crisis. And I wanted to know? ask you about that, Daniel, just because just just to emphasize, you know, b- before we t- look at the Mexican official position and it's maybe unofficial as well, but that you mentioned last Sunday after hundreds attempted to rush the border, the U.S. lobbed tear gas grenades at the migrants, including many children and the photos, of course, have gone viral. Uh, I think you report that 69 were arrested on the U.S. side of the border and 98 were being held in Mexico to be deported. But then scandalously, you know, to add to this use of force, the Trump administration and echoed by Fox News downplayed the danger of the kind of tear gas that was used, pretending it was only uh, pepper and water. And I think one Fox News person said it could be eaten on nachos. So can you comment on first, like, whether or not this, this kind of force is unusual, and you know what the effect has been, and and does and do you see it as uh, a direct relation, uh, you know, cause of the uh, presence now of the U.S. military on the border, and that this is like a harbinger for more to come? Well, I would hope that it's not a harbinger for more to come, but I would also point out that no, it has not been. Um, it's not the first time that the U.S. government has used this kind of deterrent on the border. It's something that they say that they don't want to do. They they call it kind of their last resort. I understand that Sunday was an extremely chaotic scene and that the migrants themselves were confused about what was going on. And in this kind of a desperate situation, while misinformation or rumor uh, can spread very quickly, um, there is no control. There is no leadership, I guess, and that there is no way. And so I think that makes the migrants also I should say, vulnerable to misinformation and vulnerable to, um, you you know, different interests that might want to move them in a certain way. Um, No, the tear gas is not healthy or edible. Tear gas is tear gas. It's meant to be painful and horrible and meant to to make you want to run away. 
because of how uncomfortable it is. And so I think that's a very dehumanizing and, and ridiculous thing to say, and it just shows the total lack of empathy and the total lack of any kind of on-the-ground, boots-on-the-ground awareness of what the situation is actually like, and the fact that, um, you know, not just for Mexico, but for Baja California and for Tijuana to have to, to, to be dealing with this, it's really pushing everyone... I think, to their limits, and is also having effects on broader society in the area. Uh, Tijuana, San Diego is a very robust and actually quite healthy economic region, and both sides rely on, a one, a one, on one another symbiotically. So to close the border for six hours on Thanksgiving weekend, Black yeah. Friday, quote-unquote, weekend, also had, was immensely damaging for Tijuana and for the broader border region. And it's not, you know, the migrants' fault, but, and, you know, but it also results in a change of heart and a shift in attitudes in Tijuana towards the migrants, and you don't want that to happen. Right. Because if Tijuana starts um, not uh, feeling welcome towards the migrants, well, then you could have horrible scenes like the anti-migrant uh, protests that were occurring a week before Thanksgiving. And so the more that people and that governments and leaders ignore the root causes of these caravans, try to solve them, try to process these asylum seekers more quickly, the more we're going to have uglier scenes and uglier actor effects like violence and, uh, you know, hateful protests like the kinds that we've been seeing. Today, AMLO takes office. That's Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador. is the new president. He comes from the left. Do you expect to see a different response from Mexico toward the migrants as a result? And maybe in your answer... You could talk about what the official response has been. Well, I would certainly hope so. Everyone is hoping that once Andres Manuel López Obrador and his government takes power, um, that there will be an immediate response, an immediate change and shift, because right now the federal government is sort of in that lame duck scenario. People are probably just packing up you know, their things and leaving their offices. So this is a crucial moment. There should be a lot of pressure in Mexican society on Andres Manuel and on getting him to more forcefully and better respond to this uh, crisis and this migration, I would certainly hope so, because like I said, more and more are coming, and until we, you know, we improve conditions overall, socioeconomically and politically, in Guatemala and Honduras and El Salvador, we'll keep seeing these kinds of migrations, and we're all going to have to confront how to deal with them in a humane and a just way, and, and, and in a way that you know serves all of our interests, um, really hemispherically. And so we to see what AMLO will be doing once he assumes office on December 1st. Okay, we're going to have to leave it there. But Daniel Hernandez, thank you so much once again for your incredible reporting that really brought us inside the migrant refugee camp on the border in Tijuana. Take a look at Daniel's reporting at LATaco.com. It's a terrific website, and news is just one part of it. Daniel is the editor of LA Taco, and he's a frequent contributor right here on Beneath the Surface, former Mexico Bureau Chief for Vice News, former staff writer at the LA Times and LA Weekly. And don't forget to go out and buy his book, Down in Delirious in Mexico City. Daniel Hernandez, Thanks for being with us on Jacobin Radio. Thank you, Susie. Thanks for listening. I'm your host, Susie Wiseman. This is Jacobin Radio. Thanks to producer and director Alan Minsky and to Jacobin Radio's Micah Utrecht. 
Bhaskar Sumkara is the founder and editor of Jacobin Magazine. And special thanks to Robert Brenner. And thanks to you for listening. I'm Susie Wiseman. 